Welcome to Rich Answers, a public affairs program of the Conference of Churches and a production of the 224 Ecospace, where changemakers work, create, and lead. The nation is reeling after the events of a white nationalist rally Unite the Right in Charlottesville, Virginia last weekend, where this free speech rally turned deadly as a white supremacist drove into a crowd, injuring 19 and killing Heather Hare, an unarmed protester. To talk about what happened and where we go from here, we have two transformational leaders. Rich Holland serves as principal director of CoLab and board chair of Compass Peace Builders. And Jason Friedland also serves as a program director of Discovery Center, a board member of the Minority Inclusion Project, and a community activist. Welcome. Hi, good to see you. Good to see both of you and, and be here with you today. So just as a way of giving our listeners some background on who you are, Rich, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you entered this field of community consciousness and activism? Oh, wow. Um, in a way, I was born into it. Um, I was uh, I was born in Haiti, and uh, and my parents had to uh, had to leave abruptly uh, due to some um, some uh, political insurrection that was going on, and that that we were caught up in as a family. Um, so, uh, in you know, and they came here without documentation, and, and uh, my sister and I followed several years after them. So it was um, uh, the idea of um, of what ha- of how we live uh, with a boot on your neck uh, has been a, a a place of response for me for the for my entire life. Um, I recognized how to uh, turn that into uh, opportunities for change uh, when I somewhere around the time that I started my business. Um, we started collab and we were able to work with um, some Fortune five hundred companies very quickly. So. We were in boardrooms and um, and having those types of um, of pure capital experiences uh, because we were always small. We had the opportunity to work on things that we actually cared about. Um, uh, we ran a fair amount of profit working with these scale of organizations. So we spent half of our time doing things that were interesting and half of our time doing things that you know that sold elevators and motorcycles and, and cell phones. Um, while doing while following this pursuit of things that taught us, uh, I had a, a meeting um, with the director of the Human Rights Institute at UConn, and he drew a diagram for me about uh, what happens with folks as they li- they live under sort of a sustained condition of of deprivation of their rights, uh, you know, of deprivation of their of a, of a denial of their humanity in a way. And, um, and that diagram uh, was counter uh, to what I thought. And, uh, and I learned very quickly uh, that time is the largest culprit, that allowing things to go on is, is uh, where the largest amount of spiritual and, and soul wounds exist because um, you lose the muscle memory of a time before the condition that you're living under, and that becomes more difficult uh, to uh, to change at that point. Uh, folks become a part of this culture of oppression as opposed to uh, the opportunity for resistance there. 
and uh, that helped me recognize the sort of urgency of of engaging in communion and uh, saying a resounding no before things get too far. And uh, and within a week, uh, we had stopped working on corporate work altogether. Wow! And um, and made a commitment to being in community uh, and to identifying. Uh, partners uh, to work with uh, to uh, start bringing liberation to people who um, who have gone too long without. Powerful. So, Jason, tell us about how you found yourself in this world of community activism and social change. Um, yeah, I think my my story almost stands in contrast to Rich's story. I was not born into it. I was born into a relatively comfortable and privileged existence in, in the northwest corner of Connecticut um, and wasn't aware uh, of the comfort and privilege that I had. We're in the northwest. Um, that's where I'm from. So also. I was born in Thomaston, Connecticut. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Well, born in Waterbury, raised in Thomaston. Um, and there's a lot of really nice people in Thomaston. Um, and I, for a long time, was one of those really nice people who existed in a world unaware that my niceness um, could be um, a cover for all of the ways that um, sort of the normed experiences that I had were participating in the oppression of other people. Um, I was brought up in a pretty conservative paradigm of Christianity. Um, and I remember at a young age um, understanding this notion of justice um, and biblical justice, as I understand, I have a degree in biblical theology, um, biblical justice being the way things ought to be in the world. Um, and when I look around, I see so many things not as they ought to be. Uh, and the more that I've built relationships with people whose experiences are different than mine, I begin to see with a lens that they have and that they hold um, where things are not as they ought to be. And I couldn't see it before. Um, you know, Rich used the expression of, you know, people holding a boot to your neck. Um, I think I was the person wearing that boot for a really long time and I didn't know it mm. um, because I didn't have any kind of relationship and in many ways was taught to not value the humanity of those that I was treading on. Um, so there was no amount of malintent or um, harm intended to other persons. Um, but I realized that my um, unexamined ways of being in the world as a white man who holds all sorts of privileges um, can dismiss and reject and harm people. Um, and now, having had the experiences that I've had over the last 15 years or so of living in Hartford and having spent some time in San Francisco and in Chicago, um, I have a much different community of people that I consider to be my chosen family. Mm. I mean, when I see the world that we live in today, my family is being harmed um, by events like what have happened in Charlottesville, but also by um, all kinds of things that are happening in our public schools here in Hartford, um, just in, in various ways of, of sort of social being. Um, and so my tra trajectory in the last five to eight years has been um, I have changed more than I think I've impacted change in any space. Um, but I'm, I feel really sort of humbled to be in this space and to be in relationship with people like, you know, with, like you, Shelly, and, and like Rich. Um, and, you know, constantly being, um, wanting to be about the work of understanding the way my being and my presence or my absence is harming other people. Mm -hmm. Well, our examined life is how we actually do begin to change the world. Mm -hmm. We change ourselves, and that starts to have an impact on the world changing around us. Absolutely. So as both of you know, I wasn't in the country last weekend mm -hmm. when Charlottesville happened. And so it's an interesting thing to experience a crisis in America when you're not actually in America. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I was pretty far removed from traditional media. So I was only getting snippets mm -hmm. of the report 
of what happened. So I'd like to start out by first asking you, Jason, from your point of view, what happened last weekend? Tell me what happened. Um, what happened last weekend was folks who had um, held really intense, harmful nationalist white supremacist ideologies, um, but usually discussed them at their dinner tables and in their faith communities and in their homes, um, did it very loudly and in public. Um, I don't think that there was anything um, shocking, surprising, or new about the ideologies that were discussed um, or the reasons why people were rallying to unite themselves and to protect their sense of identity and their sense of culture. That, um, that has always been a part of sort of the American history's narrative. This concept of white supremacy is our shared story in this country. Um, and I think it's been, it's been quieter and it's been in buildings and in homes and online. Um, and what happened over the weekend in Charlottesville was emboldened by really an administration that seems to support these kinds of ideologies um, and certainly hasn't condemned them outright. Um, they found themselves in a, a vocal platform um, and then you know, the, Antifa, the Antifa movement and the anarchists and the anti-racists showed up to say, you can't do that here. Um, we're not going to allow you to. You know, Rich talked about violently or vehemently saying no. And I think that's what happened. People said no. Um, and then, you know, all sorts of uh, violence resulted. Um, so I think that's a piece of what happened in Charlottesville. So, Rich, I'll give you the opportunity as well. Here I am, your colleague and mm -hmm. friend who wasn't in the country when it happened. What happened from your point of view? So I think um, uh, Jason, as always, did a great job um, with the script. Um, so if you're going to write the role uh, for the actors to perform, uh, that's the bulk of it. Um, uh, that's the bulk of what happened on the street. Anyway, um, there were other things that, that I think were happening politically uh, that could inform that, and I'm sure we'll get to it. Um, the, uh, as a, as a director, I also kind of like to look at the motivations, um, of things, uh, because I think that, um, that we could write, we could play the screen in a bunch of the script in a bunch of different ways, but until we actually have a real profound understanding of the motivation, uh, we're not going to understand the characters particularly well. Um, if I take a look at, um, what happens with power. Uh, um, that is a character in this script uh, that we need to have a conversation about, um, the character of power. Um, I think back to this incredible uh, scene in, I think it was the first Jurassic Park movie, um, uh, where folks were just kind of walking up and down this wall and they would hear this buzzing every now and then, this sort of electrical buzzing and, uh, and nobody really understood what that was. And eventually someone asked, hey, what is that? It's like, those are the rafters throwing themselves at the fence, trying to find where the weakness is. Mm. And uh, it was a methodical, intentional, um, reptilian approach uh, to, being, to unleashing power. Mm -hmm. um, that to me is what was happening in Charlotte. Um, uh, that the outcome of that was unclear, but a group of folks uh, elected to unleash their reptilian force uh, to see how it was going to play out. And, um, and uh, to a large extent, 
it looks kind of like in the first round uh, that um, they found the fault in the wall, in the in the wall, and um, uh, they had an administration that, regardless of the pressure uh, that was put on them uh, to uh, to denounce uh, these uh, reptilian intentions, um, uh, elected uh, to create conflict around uh, to sustain a conflict between what's right and what's left as opposed to taking a look at essentially what's there which is a discussion between what's right and what's wrong and um and uh, that to me is the is the arc of what happened in charlie we are going to take a break at this point and come back and continue this conversation looking at how power plays out in the relationships that came forth in charlottesville we'll be back after the break Cinnamon, where you gonna run to? Cinnamon, where you gonna run to? Where you gonna run to? All on that day, will I run to the rock? Please hide me and run to the rock. Please hide me and run to the rock. Please hide me, Lord. All on that day, but the rock cried out. I can't hide you the rock right out. I can't hide you the rock right out. I ain't gonna hide you down all on that day. I said, Rock, what's the matter with you, Rock? Don't you see I need you, Rock? Lord, 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 all on that day. So I ran to the He was waiting around to the 
went the river It was boiling around the sea It was boiling around the sea It was boiling all on the day So I ran to the Lord I said, Lord, hide me Please hide me Please help me all on that day
the vultures circling beneath the dark clouds, looking for the rain. Looking for the rain. Just like the city that stagger on the coastline in a nation that just can't stand much more. Like the forest buried beneath the highway, never had a chance to grow. to grow And now it's winter Winter in America Yes, and all of the hills have been killed Sent away Yeah, but the people know know it's winter Winter in America And ain't nobody fighting Cause nobody knows what to say Save your soul Lord knows from winter in America The Constitution, a noble piece of paper with free society, a struggle but they died in vain. And now democracy is a ragtime on the corner, hoping for some rain. It look like either hoping, hoping for some rain. And I see the robins perched in barren treetops They're watching last-ditch races marching across the floor But just like the peace signs that vanished in our dreams Never had a chance to grow Never had a chance to grow
it's a winner Winter in America And all of the healers Done been killed Sit away Yeah, the people know The people know it's winter the same. trouble focusing in school having trouble finding connor's middle school would you like directions no why is connor having trouble focusing in school finding lowest airfare to istanbul no i'm, I'm tired of fighting with him over homework home walk restaurant need a review no i need help he's very smart but his mind wanders he's disorganized i think i understand Oh, God. French fries. Finding best potatoes. No! Russet. Fingerling. You can't go. Why don't you understand me? Sorry, I was trying to show how Connor feels every day. Frustrating, isn't it? Redirecting to understood.org. For the one in five kids with learning and attention issues, this is what life can feel like. ExploreUnderstood.org, a free online resource about learning and attention issues designed to help your child thrive in school and in life. Understood.org, because understanding is everything. Welcome back. We're talking about the events of Charlottesville, Virginia, last weekend where a free speech rally turned deadly as a white supremacist drove into a crowd, injuring 19 and killing Heather Hare. So we were talking about the impact of power in the midst of all this, and we're seeing something unleashed in our nation right now. What are we seeing as a people and where do we need to stand as people who are committed to social change and justice? So power, power is an actor in all this, Rich, so I'll let you start there. Where should we be as people of concern and heart for all people? I think where we should be is, um, is in a place where we do not wait uh, for a response. I think that our responses need to be sharp. It needs to be immediate. Uh, they're going to be criticized. You know, getting in the streets and saying no is an important thing to do. Uh, waiting to say no um, disempowers uh, the, the spirit that holds us all together. You know, so let's start acting and build, the, you know, build in the air and understand that we're going to face criticism. I mean, the, the folks who showed up in response to Charlotte faced some criticism and it was going to be inevitable. Um, there's no way to, to, get, um, to get it perfect. Uh, but to continue to do is critical. Um, uh, so I say organize more protests and let the organizations that are really good at, uh, at building on that uh, build on that, but let's keep the energy sustained. There's this incredible performance artist, um, uh, not a performance artist, an installation artist. She does, she makes like 
big um, uh, electronic billboards and things all over the world. There's uh, there's a piece that she'd done that I uh, that I paraphrase all the time uh, and make it my own, right? And it essentially says, um, "Go to where the people are hungry, feed them, and organize them." And those three steps, I think, is essential to what we do. Let's take a look at what people are hungry for. Let's find the people who are literally hungry for food in, in the deserts, uh, in the various deserts around the country and around the globe, hungry for food, hungry for water, hungry for the basics. Feed them and organize them. Uh, find um, folks who are hungry for justice and find ways of feeding that and organizing that and support the organizations on both ends uh, who do that, the folks who are working with the food trucks and with the delivery services, whether it's delivery of justice or what have you, and support them. But let's not forget supporting the, the larger uh, entities uh, that are holding all of the pieces together and putting them to really good use. The more we can align our forces, the more we can align, uh, the more we can demonstrate our power. Uh, the better off we are. What I've seen happening uh, in Washington, for example, that there's a tendency to uh, to align the political right. So I'm going to have to actually be specific about which right I mean now, right? <laughs> to align the political right uh, with um, with one of the largest um, uh, pieces of power in this country, which is money. Um, so what I'm seeing though is that the alignment of what's morally right. Uh, together creating a, a strong voice is decoupling um, the political right with money. Um, and uh, and they are slowly being, uh, we're finding that places like uh, racism, uh, these neo-Nazisms, um, uh, these supremacists, uh, these, you know, these folks that, uh, that um, market violence and hatred, uh, corporations are distancing themselves from them very quickly. And the reason they're doing that is because we are being vocal and, uh, and we are signing those petitions and we are getting out in the streets and we're, we're threatening our power to boycott and to, <laughs> and to hurt them uh, financially. And they are, dis they are uh, disenfranchising um, the power, the, uh, what, what's interesting is I see the reframing of the issue, and I'm noticing that around the country there are a number of free speech rallies mm -hmm. rising up. So the reframe is not that it's a mm -hmm. white supremacist gathering, it's a free speech rally. Jason, what do you say to that? Well, I think that you've really nailed it um, in connecting the idea of power to white supremacy. I think that people think that white supremacy is about an active hatred of non-white people. And I think that's certainly a part of it. Um, but I think really it's um, there's a, a Sharon Martinez defines white supremacy culture as the ideology that says that the thoughts, ideas, beliefs, and actions of white people are superior to the thoughts, ideas, actions, beliefs of people of color. Um, and hate doesn't really play an active role in that definition, but power does. Um, who holds power around saying what is good, what is normal, what is valued, what is right? Mm -hmm. um, and that, that's a power conversation. Um, and I think that so much of this country, um, everything has been white. You know, our you know, the leaders, every, you know, educational institution, legal institution, healthcare institution has been built by and for white people, um, holding them in positions of power. And I think what we're seeing now, um, and I think social media has played a really large role in amplifying the voices of people of color. 
Um, and so what happens was white people used to have the only voice. Um, they had every, they sat in every decision-making seat. They held all of the power. Um, and I think we have confused the idea of power. Um, I believe in the sense of power with as opposed to power over. And white supremacy relies on the sense of power over that says that I can only have power if it is by taking it, withholding it, or removing it from other people. And that's this idea of power over. And that is finite. There's a limit mm -hmm. to how much power you can have. And I think so much of the way that we are afraid of venturing into like a multicultural, multinational community where we truly could understand and value the diversity that exists in all people um, is this fear of, well, they're going to take power away from me. Um, and that's this finite sense of power over as if there's a pie and there's eight slices of power. And if I have eight of them and someone takes two of them, I have less power. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing. And that's this fear that we have is I don't want power taken away from me. Um, and I, I hold the sense of power with that says that we are actually all more powerful when other people are empowered to be powerful. I mean, so when people of color, when people of different faith traditions, when people of different countries are able to hold a sense of their own humanity and to be empowered and emboldened and activated mm -hmm. to do what they were created to do, um, we become as a community, as a society, actually more powerful. I mean, so I think the sense of free speech is saying, we don't want other people to be able to speak louder than we are speaking. Mm. Um, and so I think this white nationalist, white supremacist free speech rally is, by, is literally saying, I mean, their chant was, you will not replace us. Um, and that is maintaining the sense of power over saying, I need to control you because so much of white identity is defined by its opposition to blackness. Absolutely. Um, it's entwined with this connection in the sense of power over. Um, and I think we need to get past this notion of power over is always oppressive. There is no example anywhere in the world where power over works well for anybody um, in the long term. The question would be, though, do the general population of white folks that are sitting home right now, is there a belief in white supremacy? Because maybe that is something that's hard for people yeah. to come into an understanding of. I'm a good white person. Right. Why would you say I'm a white supremacist? I think that that's why I think having a the helpful definition of Sharon Martinez um, of what white supremacy is. I think I was brought up to think that white supremacy was um, burning crosses and calling someone the N word and going to KKK rallies. Um, and I'm never I've never done those things. I've never intended to do those things. I've, I've never even sort of been tempted to do those things. And so in that sense, I can reject and separate mm -hmm. myself from white supremacy. I think a lot of what white people done, have done historically, but certainly in the wake of Charlottesville, um, is to separate themselves from that kind of white supremacy. Right. I understand white supremacy on a spectrum and I participate in white supremacy on that spectrum. Um, the fact that I was brought up away from people of color. Um, has made it really difficult for me to believe the stories and experiences of people of color. Um, it's more natural and normal for me to understand the experiences of other white people. Um, and I, I have to make an intentional choice to believe and affirm people of color when they share their experiences with me. Because my natural inclination would be to believe my way of being ahead of their way of being. That's white supremacy in action. I mean, that is the preference and priority that my ways of being are better or more true than a, person's of a person of color's way of being. And in that way, I participate and benefit from this system of white supremacy in the way that all white people do, but on a spectrum um, where white supremacy for me isn't this overt, violent, go to a rally carrying a club. 
Um, but I absolutely am impacted by and participate in patterns of white supremacy. So, Rich, I would ask the question, is white mm -hmm. supremacy the same thing as white privilege? No. I'm going to say no. Um, and the reason I say no is certainly for me, it feels really different. Uh, how I experience it feels different. Um, uh, and, and I'm going to equate that to, as, as, as Jason was thinking, was speaking, I was visualizing this thing. Um, this annoying neighbor uh, who leaves his trash can out all the time and doesn't actually bring it back. You know, there's a rule. You need to bring darn trash cans back. You know, and, and there's something that's just kind of wrong about, you know, not following this thing that we all agreed to, you know, and then there's Columbine, you know, so sure, there is a continuum of, of stuff, but they have such radically different uh, uh, impacts that I think we need to actually start breaking that continuum down and, and looking at, you know, what we really are standing against together. And, uh, and as always, I honor the hard work that you're willing to do. Mm. And, um, and I have tremendous appreciation for it. Um, I just do hope that we don't get distracted uh, by dealing with whether you're bringing your trash can in or not. Mm. And let's all stay focused on Columbine together. Mm. Um, uh, there is a, a scale of just immediate pressing danger mm -hmm. uh, that needs to be that wants to be unleashed, that needs to be curtailed, mm -hmm. uh, that we need to focus on that and, uh, and not get too intellectual about what it is that we're dealing with mm -hmm. here. Um, uh, and I understand that um, intellectually, uh, we can have conversations about um, the, the nuances of power versus hate, mm -hmm. uh, but at the end of the day, people are getting killed, mm -hmm. you know, and people are feeling threatened. And, and that threat isn't this abstract thing that we're thinking about from back in the day. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a, a threat that's alive right now. Um, I was watching a, a documentary that Vice put together uh, mm -hmm. that, uh, that went in and, in and interviewed these, these people. And, uh, and boy, that's the urgency. We'll, we'll get to, um, to the finer points of, you know, of microaggressions and things like that, uh, you know, hopefully in a, in a year or two, but right now mm -hmm. let's deal with it's this. the immediate. Right? Yeah. Yeah. We're talking Cause that's about alive and it's growing. We're talking about the events of Charlottesville last weekend and where we are and where we need to go from here. And we'll be back after the break. have been listening to Rich Answers, a public affairs program of the Conference of Churches. Peekaboo, peekaboo, smile. Smile, buddy. Come on, smile. Oh, honey, he's still not smiling. Maybe he's not a smiler. <sighs> yeah, maybe he's just not a happy baby. Maybe he's just being a boy. You know how boys are. Or maybe he's teething. Oh, poor baby. I think his gums hurt. Maybe he's just tired. Or maybe his tummy hurts. He didn't eat that much. Maybe he's not ticklish. You think maybe he's scared of the dog? Maybe he'll outgrow it. Maybe it's a phase. Maybe he just doesn't like smiling. Maybe he has autism. And we can definitely do something to help. Maybe is all you need to find out more about autism. 
No big, joyful smiles by six months is one early sign. Learn the others at AutismSpeaks.org signs or see a doctor today for an autism screening. The sooner it's diagnosed, the better. And it can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council.
welcome back. We're talking about the events of last weekend in Charlottesville, Virginia, where there was a free speech rally that turned deadly as a white supremacist drove into a crowd, injuring 19 and killing Heather Hare. And so we now have a new martyr of the new civil rights movement in Heather Hare. What difference does it make that it was a young white woman that was run over at the protest rally versus a young black male or black woman? Well, it's, it disrupts the narrative, right? Uh, there's, uh, there's a narrative um, that wants to say that if you put a young black male in a situation, he definitely had something to do with it going wrong. You know, that there is an absolute, uh, well, both sides were involved in this in an embedded notion that it was most likely the young black guy that had something to do with this. Um, uh, this was disruptive. Um, and frankly, as I start seeing the some initial posts uh, that came out that said some really ugly and negative things about this young woman, um, some some shameful things to say about another human being, um, uh, those posts are getting uh, are getting shot down and and lambasted quite uh, quite profoundly by everybody. Um, that is not what would happen. Uh, if it were a young black man being called a thug or being called an agitator, they would have gone through his social media and said Absolutely. he had felonies and was a drug user. Mm -hmm. Or yeah, now the the fascinating thing, and I'm glad you you brought up the social media piece. Um, the moment that they named Alex Fields, um, it's this instinct that I've developed over the past year, uh, watching things uh, that happen to uh, to people of color. Uh, that as soon as they get in, uh, embroiled in, in these sort of horrific scenarios, um, that there's a raid on the social media pages to try and extract what we might find there, uh, that, uh, that could be, uh, corrupted, uh, to make some kind of implication about them. Um, and that happens immediately. Um, what I also note is that uh, when folks who aren't uh, people of color are put into these scenarios, um, their attorneys have them scrub their social media pages immediately um, as, soon as, an, as soon as a DA is brought on. The moment they released uh, Alex Field's name, I uh, did a Facebook search and went to his social media page and started mm -hmm. doing screen grabs. And I think I may actually have the only ones available. I'm in, the, in conversation with some news outlets right now around this. Uh, to share with you some of what I grabbed, uh, there was a, a post where he was having a discussion with, um, with, a, with clearly someone he knew around this video of, of this transgendered woman. And uh, they proceeded to have a long conversation about how this is like the scourge of our planet and started sharing the various ways that they were thinking of uh, to be able to murder people like this, including filling hollow tip bullets with heroin. Um, uh, Fields then uh, made the statement uh, that his friend's standards of what he would kill for were too low. And here's and then proceeded to give a list of the conditions in which he would have no problems whatsoever uh, committing murder. Um, now, that's shocking. <laughs> you know, to say, to say the least. Um, and it's out in public in the kind of casual nature 
of of statements like that and social um, media yeah yeah in in a public place where you know ideology exactly uh, it's cavalier it's um and it means it uh clearly right so so the argument that uh that you that you could take from this is like well you know people say things it's that sort of boys in the locker room conversation statements that you know that well you know this is the kinds of things that people say in the locker room well actually you know what i've been in a lot of locker rooms and it's not the kind of things that people that i've experienced people saying in locker rooms um and uh and this is not the kind of thing that people say jokingly and it's certainly not an argument that we could put forth after a guy just ran his car into a bunch of people and so the question has to be where do we go from here especially as organizers looking at protests how do we operate differently or mm-hmm. moving forward knowing that this has unleashed something? Never before would we think we're at risk for protesting mm-hmm. in the same kind of way. So what would you think, Jason? I think it's really interesting that you we've talked about both Heather and Alex. And I think so much of what whiteness teaches white people is that we are mm-hmm. the fixers and the healers and the saviors. And so I think many white people see themselves in people like Heather Heyer. And they said, that, that's what I would have done. Um, and we don't see ourselves at all in people like Alex. Um, and I think that that's really dangerous um, because I think the same narrative of whiteness and white supremacy that I was taught in public education is the same narrative of whiteness and white supremacy that Alex was taught in his public education experience. I mean, so I, as, as difficult as it's been, I've had to wrestle with the fact that I can see myself in those young men who are my age carrying torches, wearing polos. Um, I, I have to be able to see myself in that because I am a part of that. Mm. I've been enculturated and socialized into this problem of whiteness, into this problem of white supremacy. It's not been radicalized to a sense of, uh, of a, a desire to be violent. Um, but some of the same kinds of beliefs that says that my way we're of taught. being, my existence, were taught and, and live in me. And I think what white people want to do is separate ourselves from that. I mean, while I do think it's, and I appreciate Richard's earlier point, I think it's important that we make a very clear distinction about the kinds of like dealing with microaggressions versus dealing with the urgency where people of color are actively being killed. Those are different things. Um, but in my experience, white people will not be a part of solving a problem that they don't think they're a part of. Um, the reality is we don't care about problems that are other people's problems. And I think that's true for all people. Um, I, my process and my journey of understanding my own identity has wrapped me up in this problem. Um, and the idea of collective liberation, of no one is free until we're all free, the issues that are harming my community, my white community, and communities of color that I'm a part of, I am a part of that problem. And until I actively decide to be a part of that solution, I'm going to continue going about harming other people. So in the last few moments, mm-hmm. we have to find ourselves in a place of where do we go mm-hmm. from here? What will you do tomorrow that might be an adjustment based on what mm-hmm. has happened here in our nation? How is your attention shifted? Oh, I, I think one of the hashtags that I saw in response to Charlottesville was hashtag this is not us. And it was white people demonstrating the ways that they're not that kind of racist. And I actually think that's flawed. I think that's problematic. And I think that it leads white people to distance mm-hmm. themselves from the problem and say that I don't have to be a part of fixing it because I'm not a part of creating it. Um, and so my response has been to confess the ways that I'm racist, to confess to the ways that white supremacy wraps itself up into my casual way of being and harms other people. And I think that is a thing that I think white people need to do is to reflect on the ways that they 
may not be to the extreme of showing up at a nationalist rally, um, but in our everyday ways of speech and of patterns of communication and of connections and commitment to upholding perfectionism and professionalism, what ways are we perpetuating and how are we forward? complicit? How are we complicit? And to name it. And because I think um, Brene Brown says, um, when you own your story, you get to write the ending. And if you don't own your story, your story will own you. And I think that we, our nation, is wrapped up in the story of white supremacy and we distance ourselves from it so we don't have to address it. I think we need to name it, see ourselves in it, and then we can, by confessing, commit to being in a kind of collaborative community with people that seeks to actively do something about it. And Rich, where do you say we go from here? I say we need to, to change this narrative completely. I think we need to change the narrative of, uh, of whether of what we're going to change or what we're not going to change. There's so much sort of embedded power in that um, uh, and such a lack of humility uh, to me. Mm -hmm. uh, when you were mentioning, uh, uh, Jason, earlier that um, that we've got uh, some, uh, some uh, white folks who have uh, sort of the savior mentality mm -hmm. that they're going to go in and save today, well, that is supremacy, mm -hmm. right? You know, right. I mean, there, there's, there, are no examples that I know of in the universe um, where anybody actually does that with the masses, you know, uh, whether it's making themselves a martyr or what have you, it's, it's, there is an element of sort of superiority um, uh, built into that. And I think that we need to start really dismantling that. Mm -hmm. And I think in my S to, to kind of do the 360 on this, right? Um, uh, the way I kind of look at it, it's like, I don't need a savior. You know, I need mm. you to take in your trash can. Um, I need you to fulfill mm. your social contract. Mm -hmm. You know, it's your responsibility to do so. And I think that as we start shifting that mentality uh, to folks recognizing um, that these no's uh, are a fulfillment of our social contract together, uh, then we're getting somewhere. Mm. Rich Holland and Jason Friedland, we thank you so much for your work in the community and the world as we all strive to make this nation a more peaceful place. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Shelley. have been listening to Rich Answers, a public affairs program of the Conference of Churches and a production of the 224 Ecospace. Reach out to us and tell us what you think. Look for Rich Answers, the Conference of Churches, and me, Reverend Dr. Shelley Bess, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Like us, follow us, share us. 